This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Robert De Niro and John Travolta share the screen in Killing Season, playing on demand during its theatrical release. While Crystal Fairy, a comedy starring Michael Cera and Gabby Hoffman, is also now available on demand. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on Cable. The art house is now in your house. This episode is also brought to you by Shutterstock.com. With over 1 million high-quality video clips, Shutterstock helps you take your creative projects to the next level. For 30% off your new account, go to Shutterstock.com and use offer code SVU7. From New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video units. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. On this episode of SVU, A is for our review of the anthology horror movie... The ABCs of Death. In honor of the ABCs of Death, we were going to do an entirely alphabetical episode where we'd recommend a film for each of the 26 letters of the alphabet, all available on streaming. It would have been six hours long. It would have contained heretofore unknown depths of intelligence and wit and sparkling conversation about cinema. It would have won every single award for podcasts. It would have been the crowning achievement of our careers as film critics. But then Adam Kempinar, co-host and Grand Poobah of Film Spotting Original Recipe, emailed and asked if we'd fill in for him and Josh Larson on this week's episode. So instead, on this episode of SVU, we're going to do Film Spotting. That's right. After opening break and a brief word from our sponsors, you're going to hear an episode of Film Spotting as hosted by Matt and I. That's right. You'll still get our listener's choice review for the ABCs of Death. But instead of cue shots, we'll be doing a top five. Top five anthology movies available online, and instead of Behind the Eight Ball, you're getting a bonus review. (gasps) It's okay. I know. I know. It's going to be all right, Allison. We're going to get through this, and we're going to talk about the brand new film from the director and star of Drive, Only God Forgives. But first up is Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable. 
in which we spotlight a few notable films new on demand on cable. Allison, what is our first pick this week? Our first pick is The Gatekeepers, which is now available on demand. This is a documentary by Dror Mora. This was a 2012 Oscar nominee, though it did not win. Searching for Sugar Man won instead. And this is a film that was inspired in part by Errol Morris's The Fog of War. Hmm. It is a film about... Shin Bet, which is Israel's secret internal security service. I've heard it kind of compared to the FBI if Mossad is the CIA. And it's mostly, it's almost entirely composed of interviews with the six former heads of this service. And they take you through kind of the history of Israel, particularly as it relates to Palestine from the Six Day War up through recent years. And uh, it's just a really amazingly open, honest look at the history of the country and kind of the fears for its future from six people that you wouldn't necessarily expect to be so frank. They worked in a secret service, but also for people who you wouldn't expect to be so maybe sometimes like express their fears about the direction the country is taking. Uh, One of them says at one point that, I suppose as you get older in this job, you get more leftist, which is not the traditional, he says something to that effect, not the traditional thing that people say about getting older. Right. But it is uh, just a really interesting and just riveting, really, for a movie composed of interviews, uh, riveting uh, film. So it's it's definitely one that I don't think a lot of people paid attention to when it came out last year. And it's certainly worth looking up uh, on demand. So that is The Gatekeepers. It is now available. I didn't get a chance to see it myself, and uh, I definitely I heard a lot of good things about it. I'm looking forward to checking it out myself. All right. Well, what else we have coming out on demand this we week? We have two more picks. All right. Uh, the first one is Reality. This is coming out on July 16th. It's the new film by Matteo Garoni, who did Gamora, which was a highly acclaimed film about the Camorra in Naples. This film is also set in Naples, and it also premiered at Cannes last year, where it won the Grand Prix. It's about a Naples fishmonger who is uh, has been living kind of happily with his wife and kids as maybe the, the kind of ham, the guy who likes to you know be the center of attention at a party. And then he ends up uh, getting pulled into an audition for Italy's equivalent of Big Brother. And after that happens, he becomes obsessed with getting on Big Brother. And the film becomes one about the kind of sickness of, of like how, you know, craving reality TV attention can change you. Mm. And it was highly claimed. I have not seen it yet, but it's, uh, I, I thought Gamora was fascinating. So yeah, that was a great film. And uh, I've seen, uh, in, in videocracy, a take on Italy's relationship with reality TV. Yes. That, that was a good film as well. That's a great film. And so it's suggested that Italy has a particularly complicated relationship with reality television love to see a film from this director on it. So reality, it's coming out on July 16th on demand. And then coming out on the 19th on demand is another film I've heard a lot about, not had a chance to see yet, but it has really just a great premise, a genre premise, which is it's this Irish horror comedy directed by John Wright called Grabbers. Oh, I'm dying to see this I movie know. too. It's such a great such premise, a good premise, which is that it's set on this small island, uh, Irish island that is invaded by blood-sucking tentacle aliens uh, who are allergic to alcohol. So to stay, sa- to stay safe, everyone needs to stay drunk uh, as they battle these 
tentacle aliens. Here is all the money. Make <laughs> this movie. And this was well received when it premiered at Sundance last year. I've really been wanting to see it, so I'm excited to hear that it's coming around to On Demand, which it is doing on July 19th. Yeah, I think that also stars Richard Coyle, who is so good on Coupling. I yes, think he's the, yes. lead, the lead in that movie. And it's so. supposed to be very funny and uh, just a great lead. So. Yeah. Oh, man. All right. When does that? One that, more time. When does that, that one come, come out? That comes out on July 19th. Right, I'm circling the calendar now. <laughs> Allison, we're very pleased to have Shutterstock.com back as a sponsor this month. At Shutterstock.com, you'll find the perfect image or video for your next creative project. Whether it's for your website, publication, advertisement, video, or any other type of project, you can choose from over 1 million high-quality stock video clips, 2D or 3D animation, and motion graphics. They have clips in a variety of digital formats, and most come in HD. They source the clips from around the world and put them at your fingertips. Many contributors to Shutterstock are professional filmmakers and animators, and Shutterstock adds over 10,000 video clips each week. So every time you visit, you'll find something new. Shutterstock gives you the video content you need to bring your creative projects to the next level, and they make it easy with sophisticated search tools that allow you to drill down by category, resolution, contributor, and more, shareable clip boxes, and they also have a huge library of photos, vectors, icons, and infographic templates for all your creative needs. Shutterstock has flexible pricing, and you can choose between individual clips or video packs, and download clips in HD or standard definition or web formats. Shutterstock is a complete global offering with offices located in more than a dozen countries and multilingual customer service with dedicated corporate reps and full-time customer support throughout the week. You can try Shutterstock today by signing up for a free account. There's no credit card needed. You just start an account, start using Shutterstock, and then save your video selections to your clip box. If you decide to purchase, use offer code SVU7, and new accounts will receive 30% off any package. That's Shutterstock.com, and for 30% off new accounts, use offer code SVU7. We thank Shutterstock for their support. All right, stay tuned. Film Spotting SVU is about to become, through magic, Film Spotting Original Recipe. We're going to have our listener's choice review of the ABCs of Death. We're going to have our top five anthology movies currently available online. But first, here's our review of Only God Forgives. Ask him why he killed my brother. I died in the side. It's a little more complicated than that, mother. He hasn't told you, has he? There's someone else involved. Some cop. You can't go around killing cops anymore. Don't worry. I'll find him. And then we'll kill him. By 2011, Danish-born director Nicholas Winding Refn already had more than a decade of cult films, including the Pusher Trilogy and Bronson, under his belt. And that's the year he released Drive, a sleek, violent action movie starring Ryan Gosling as an unnamed Hollywood stuntman who moonlights as a getaway driver for robberies. The film went on to gross more than $75 million worldwide. It introduced Refn to a whole new audience, and it even became something of a cultural phenomenon. I saw people wearing drive Halloween costumes last year, Allison, in the form of Gosling's signature silver satin scorpion jacket. I'm sure they were just looking for an opportunity to own that jacket all year round. Yeah, I'm sure. Refn and Gosling now reteam for the new film, Only God Forgives, 
which also shares Drive's criminal underworld subject matter, its moody neon-lit cinematography, and a pulsing techno score by Cliff Martinez, which you're going to hear as our featured music on the show this week. But Only God Forgives is also a decidedly different experience than Drive. It's darker, sadder, and definitely less interested in delivering conventional mainstream thrills. Allison, my question to you is, do you think that audience that discovered and loved Drive, maybe the people that were dressed in those silver jackets, maybe they're cosplaying to the theater this weekend to see Only God Forgives, are they going to be equally satisfied with Refn and Gosling's follow-up? Well, this film is certainly more stylized and even leaner in terms of narrative. Mm -hmm. I don't think that... Gosling's character speaks a line. For he the has first. a name this time. He does have a name. Julian. Julian. Uh, but he doesn't speak for the first 20 minutes or so. And you barely understand the workings of the, the criminal enterprise he's involved with, even when he does speak. It's kind of background, very stylish and gorgeous looking background for this revenge story that plays out. But I do think it's a much colder film than Drive. It doesn't have the element of romance and sacrifice and, you know, this kind of romantic tragedy that is at the core of Drive, mm -hmm. in addition to its its kind of action sequences. It's just all this kind of spiraling downward, very minimalist revenge story. Yeah. So I definitely, I think no matter how much a fan you were of Drive's just uh, aesthetic elements, this is a much colder film overall. Yeah. I think that it got a kind of notoriously mixed reception at Cannes, including... Mixed may be generous in this case. <laughs> it was more like a notoriously negative reception at Cannes. Though it also had people standing up and giving it, you know, a standing ovation. A few, a few. <laughs> so uh, I, I think that reaction, if if it, if the reaction here is unlikely to be as severe as that, mm -hmm. I do not think it will possibly be as universally liked as Drive is. Yes, and I do think that if people go in expecting Drive to, you know, Bangkok drift or something, they're going to be disappointed because as similar in some ways as the movie is, it is a very different experience for the ways you put it. But I have to admit, I like the movie more than I expected to, not as much as Drive, but I would recommend it on its own terms. And I, I certainly would not boo the movie if I had seen it at Cannes. I can't imagine being that enraged or disgusted, although can uh, critical audiences and their booing. That's sort of a, a thing to do. It doesn't necessarily equate to a a disaster of enormous proportions. It just meant the critics were feeling particularly cranky. I look at these movies as sort of a, a very interesting double feature or almost like a call and answer. You know, like Drive was like this fantasy, right? Like you said, it had these romantic elements. And even though it was very dark as well, there was kind of a excitement about it and this movie is almost a nightmare. This is the movie's like the opposite in, in a lot of ways. You know, instead of the dream of what it would be like to be a really awesome stunt driver and having these romantic adventures, what would it be like to to be trapped in Bangkok with all these horrible people and like lost in this maze of blood and violence and revenge and all these sorts of things? And it's it's just not as clean and neat as Drive is, you know, where there's good guys and bad guys. And this one, everyone is so screwed up. And everything is really sad and depressing, but I kind of enjoyed it, or maybe not enjoyed, but found it fascinating on its own terms. I, I mean, I think the idea of them paired together is certainly very interesting. I like this one a lot less than Drive. I don't hate it, but mm -hmm. I don't think it entirely works. But I do think Drive is this, it romanticizes this character 
who uh, you know has this moment of like potential happiness and right. then has to kind of choose to you know sacrifice it maybe for the good of this woman that he loves, right. right? I mean, you can kind of see why people would want to dress up like the character. He has this great look, and he does these really... And he's, as a song goes, he's, he's a real hero. He's a real yeah. hero, a real exactly. Hero. Whereas he... the character here, while superficially similar in this kind of brooding, but like puppy-eyed Ryan Gosling, you know, <laughs> Ryan Goslingness <laughs> yes. that he does so well, the character here, and what's being romanticized is basically like this drive towards oblivion no if, no pun know, intended i'm no sure pun intended. exactly but you know like throughout he has these visions kind of of being chopped to bits right like he throughout before we even understand really what the arc of the film is going to be yes and that's i think a lot more difficult of a path to kind of latch onto is a character who really has nothing right and doesn't even want anything right and his motivation is I mean, what is his motivation? I think that's just it. Like, uh, like kind of maybe willingly going towards oblivion right. is as close you get as you get to a motivation right. for him. The movie begins with his brother being killed as a result of something the brother did. Something it, terrible. Something horrible. He's not an innocent victim right. by any means. Right. But again, it's a it's a cycle of violence, and I think as we already I already mentioned, it's like the, sort of this revenge begets revenge begets revenge sort of scenario, and the brother is killed. In Bangkok, and then their mother, who's played by uh, Kristen, Kristen Scott Thomas, Thomas in a fabulous performance, yes. arrives, like, demanding her revenge. My, my son was killed, so she comes to Ryan Gosling, her other son, and demands retribution and demands that he gets it. But he clearly doesn't want to do it. He's just sort of at the mercy of his mother. So he's sort of this unwilling victim of her and what the brother did. But there's also this suggestion that he's not innocent either. I mean, he is a drug dealer and is clearly a violent person himself, so... He just is... He has very little control of his own life, I think, is the, the kind of message, right? Mm -hmm. And it's interesting in Drive, like, the stripping the story down to these very minimalist elements worked. It made it this kind of almost this Melville type, you know, Le Samurai sparseness and cleanness to it. Mm -hmm. But I think here, stripping the story down to those elements can almost seem a little silly, I think, at times, because you have a character who has so little to kind of direct him that uh, there were times where I felt that was exasperating to me, where it was like, I don't know why we're even watching this character kind of go down this path right. at a certain point. I feel like they're is very little forward narrative momentum in this because mm -hmm. all the characters are just following these kind of exchanges of, of revenge killings right. for no like larger motivation that's revealed. I would agree there's very little narrative momentum here, but I would say that I, I just didn't really mind that. At a certain point, very quickly in the film, I, I just came to realize that, again, we're not even watching really a story. I really felt like I was watching a nightmare. You know, nightmarish is, a, is an adjective that's applied to a lot of movies uh, but usually that just means well they're scary or there's some strange imagery and i this movie really felt to me like nightmares it, it flips so quickly between scenes that seem relatively realistic to scenes that are totally outrageous there are these weird and strange sexual and violent components and yes it, it doesn't really seem like it's moving towards anything but there is this really intense sense of claustrophobia in these locations, and there's this sense of being trapped in them and not being able to move forward, and that Gosling's character really is kind of lost in this world, and he can't escape it. 
And I just really responded to that. I really felt like I was inside Nicholas Winding Refn's head. I just responded to it. I can sort of understand why you would say, well, there's no, there's no narrative in here because there really isn't. But I guess I just I kind of got lost in the world in a in a pleasant or maybe unpleasant but satisfying way. Yeah, and I don't think it was the lack of a narrative that got to me so much as it was I felt like maybe a, like a kind of simplistic psychology behind its main character as much as we're given, mm-hmm. which is this feeling of being at one point literally his hands are tied. <laughs> you know, like that he doesn't feel like he has any control, but that's also all we have of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it's all tied up with his mother issues. And uh, Kristen Scott Thomas is this really fabulous character. She's like this bleach blonde incest monster kind of thing. <laughs> uh, it's just like really foul mouthed, but also like very regal uh, and terrifying. Mm-hmm. And she certainly is one of the, the better parts of the movie. We haven't talked about the style yet. And this is like an extremely stylized movie. Yes. Uh, it's all got like these reds, these like deep, deep reds all the time. Yes. A lot of scenes of um, light shooting through like panels, carved panels, this recurring hallway imagery, including this dark doorway that I think pretty clearly symbolizes death that keeps cropping up in all of these images. Yep, yep. And then just the very basic idea. It's shot. It's very like Kubrick. It's got a lot of characters who are positioned in the center of scenes. And sometimes, I mean, like sometimes the things are shot like I feel like the end of 2001 is the only comparison I can come up with. Hmm. You don't get a layout of the physical space. You know, you kind of like... The shots, you'll see like a shot of one person standing in one part of the room and then a shot of someone else somewhere, you know. That it's it hard doesn't, to know how they connect to one and another. And it doesn't traditionally lay out space that way, yeah. which I think is part of why it has that sense of a nightmare. Absolutely. You know, that it throws off any sense of of a like layout that makes sense in your mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. It's funny. The um, the fact that it's, it's in Thailand, shot in Thailand, I, I was getting a little bit, I don't know if you did, of a, a Pichapong Morisethical vibe at times. Mm. You know, it almost was like his version of Drive in some scenes. Just this, the very strange imagery, the slightly supernatural aspects to it. There's a character who we haven't mentioned yet who's sort of a cop who's the sort of opposite number to the Ryan Gosling character. He's his nemesis. And he almost feels like a supernatural character. He's constantly pulling out this sword to use as his weapon, but he doesn't wear a scabbard or anything to hold it. It just kind of, he pulls it out of his back, almost as if it appears by magic. But I thought that character and his, like, his love of karaoke, there are all these scenes of him doing karaoke often kind of like cut very jarringly with like horrific violence blended together. I don't know. There was something about the very quiet, very still, very slow nature of this with long takes and strange digressions. That did remind me a little bit of something like Uncle Boon Me. That's a little bit. I That wasn't a connection I made. I would have said more like Inland Empire. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's a, there's lynch, a lot thing of lynch thing to it as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's certainly a beautiful movie, if sometimes oppressively stylish. Like, it's so... I don't know if there's any scene that's not, like, just immaculately... And like, you know, very carefully framed and, like, uh, and just choreographed, you know, yes. to the point where sometimes I think it can just seem heavy as a movie like visually mm-hmm. it's just you know heavy on your senses uh, i mean i are it's not any, subtle no it's not a subtle not. film are there any particular moments like scenes that stand out for you in terms of visuals i don't know if i have a particular signature moment but there are certainly some to me some very memorable scenes there's a fight 
between Ryan Gosling's character and that policeman. He's played by an actor named Mathia Pensringarm. That's Lieutenant Chang uh, in the film. They have sort of a fist fight, like a like a Thai boxing match, which I thought was really not really intense. It's not really like exciting, but there was something kind of beautiful and hideous about it at the same time. There's a scene where that same character, Lieutenant Chang, is attacked, uh, sort of like an assassination attempt on him. Again, as this sort of cycle of revenge and violence continues, that I also thought was really very well shot and kind of effective. And again, it's sort of it's that's a, that scene is like all slow motion, and it again has this very nightmarish, methodical, unyielding horror quality to it that I thought was really effective. Oh, you could choose almost any part of this film. Like, it is, as I said, like, it is very carefully thought out in terms of visuals. Yeah. But the one that, that stood out for me is, like, actually the one in which uh, Gosling's character and some others go to pay a visit on the guy who killed his brother. Mm. And they're standing in a variety of doorways, and it cuts between, like, him leaning against one and then one of the other guys in a courtyard. And it's such a strange, unsettling way to lay out like very basic information, which is that they're waiting in a courtyard that, I mean, it was, I thought just one of the most interestingly offbeat ways uh, and doorways and shooting through doorways and shooting like uh, in doorways is just a recurring like visual theme in yeah. the movie. What did you make of the hand imagery in the movie? You mentioned his hands are tied and what's he, but there's a lot of hand imagery in general, close-ups of his hands clenching, like from his own perspective a lot of shots of, of hands being, I don't know how much we want to say, but hands being physically damaged in some ways. So was there, I, that was one thing that I sort of was uh, struck by, but haven't quite figured out what it all means yet. Do you have a theory for me? Can you explain it to me? I think it just comes down to his feeling like ineffectual, that he has, you know, like what, the clenching of the fists is this kind of like buried rage, right? Potentially that he's got anger that he only lets out in small bursts in and not necessarily to the people who deserve it. Uh, there's a scene where he's clearly got issues with his mother, but instead he yells at the girl who he took with him as basically a buffer at one, at one point. And I think that the clenching of the fist is that kind of anger that he's tamped down. I think it's just in general that the hand imagery represents his feeling of, of kind of having no authority over his own life. So would you recommend this movie overall? I don't know. I give it a real, like a maybe. You know, very it mixed. is like, You're very it's a very, it's a really interesting visual experience. But I do think it's also sometimes like incredibly indulgent. Right. Yeah. I'm still wrestling with it. I, you know, I, I'd say overall I would recommend it. But I would also have that kind of caveat or that warning in there that you're not getting drive too, And you should know that going in. But I think there's something here that I would I would watch this movie again. I'd be interested to see it again to kind of go back into this nightmare world and see what else I pull out of it the second time. I feel like there's more there. I'm not with the can critics. I'm not booing this one. I'm going to give it a not not a standing ovation, but kind of a mm, like a A golf clap, a pensive. (laughs) Yes, a golf clap or like a pensive knowing nod, you know, Mm, yes, yes. Only God Forgives is out now in limited release. And you can also rent the film at home on demand. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can leave a voicemail at 312-264-0744 or find us on Twitter at FilmSpottingSVU. Up next to set the mood for our next discussion, I sing the letters of the alphabet while Allison repeatedly stabs me with a butcher knife. Our review of the ABCs of Death is next. Stay with us. Take a quantum. 
episode of Film Spotting is brought to you by Shutterstock.com, and at Shutterstock.com you'll find the perfect image or video for your next creative project. Whether it's for your website, publication, advertisement, video, or any other type of project, you can choose from over 1 million high-quality stock video clips, 2D or 3D animation, and motion graphics. They have clips in a variety of digital formats, and most come in HD. Shutterstock sources video clips from around the world and puts them at your fingertips, with contributors who are professional filmmakers and animators. Shutterstock adds over 10,000 video clips each week, so every time you visit, you'll find something new. Shutterstock gives you the video content you need to bring your creative projects to the next level. And they make it easy with sophisticated search tools that allow you to drill down by category, resolution, and contributor, shareable clip boxes, and a huge image library of photos, vectors, icons, and infographic templates for all your creative needs. Shutterstock has flexible pricing, where you can choose between individual clips or video packs, and you can download clips in HD or by standard definition or web formats. Shutterstock is a complete global offering with offices located in more than a dozen countries and multilingual customer service with dedicated corporate reps and full-time customer support throughout the week. You can try Shutterstock today by signing up for a free account. There's no credit card needed. You just start an account and start using Shutterstock to help you imagine what your next project could be like. Then save your video selections you find to your clip box. If you decide to purchase, use offer code FILM7, and new accounts will receive 30% off any package. That's Shutterstock.com, and for 30% off new accounts, use offer code FILM7. Welcome back to Film Spotting. Filling in for Adam and Josh this week, we're Matt Singer and Allison Wilmore of the Film Spotting SVU podcast, dedicated to movies available on streaming around the internet. Now, on every episode of our show, Film Spotting SVU, we have a listener's choice section where we offer up three films or sometimes television seasons that are available on streaming. And everyone in the audience is able to vote on them with the winner getting reviewed on the next show. This last episode, the choices were the Orson Welles TV movie, The Immortal Story, which trailed a distant third behind Atlas Shrugged Parts 2 and the 2012 horror anthology film, The ABCs of Death. It was a neck and neck race, but you're being spared our discussion of Atlas Shrugged Parts 2 because the ABCs of Death came from behind to take the win. 
Now, the ABCs of Death is produced by Ant Timpson and Tim League, who is the founder of the Alamo Draft House and Fantastic Fest. And the film brings together 26 different directors who were each assigned a different letter of the alphabet, chose a word starting with that letter, and used it as the basis of a short film about death. Many of the directors came through Fantastic Fest, so there's a pretty international skew to these films. Came from likes of Spanish filmmaker Nacho Vigalondo, Thomas Malling of Norwegian Ninja, Jorge Michel Grau of the original version of We Are What We Are, and Ty West of The House of the Devil. With the average length of these shorts being around four and a half minutes, these films are showcasing a particular idea or, or shock, and they have to kind of cut to them pretty quickly. Uh, includes some gore, some animal violence, and a surprisingly high preponderance of toilets. <laughs> so, Matt, my question for you is, which did you find the most disturbing? I would probably say that the most disturbing short was also my second favorite short, and that would be X is for XXL, which is uh, the story of a woman who's overweight and she's bullied for her physical looks. Vous jouez pas dans Jurassic Park, le Montosaur, hein? Hein? And after a particularly hard day of just being abused and treated poorly, she comes home and does something very terrible to herself as a reaction to that. And I found that one very successful and very terrifying. What about yourself? I think I would go with L is for libido, which is the one in which a man wakes up being strapped to a chair. And then it becomes maybe a metaphor for watching Disturbing Fair and what we get out of it. That's a good one, too. That is, It was a good one, but also just really troubling. Very, very troubling, but also kind of funny, too. Well, yeah, and also funny. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought I, that one actually was very successful. Yes. This is directed by an Indonesian filmmaker I'd never heard of before, whose work I think I'm going to try and keep an eye on from now on. But yeah, this this film overall, not one for the children, unless you want to traumatize your children right. forever. I'm surprised you didn't mention the animal violence, because I know that's a particular spot for you, yeah. a difficult spot for you, and there's quite a bit of it. D is this. for dog fight, was one of the letters. This is actual, like, punching a dog. It looks like they're <laughs> punching dogs. It does. And I have to say... I didn't particularly uh, enjoy watching that one. That one was, I'd say, reasonably successful, I guess. But no, I, that one I was a particular uh, button pusher for me, which I, I mean, I think that's part of the point, right? The movie is, is kind of delighting in transgression and, and trying to push our buttons. Well, you know, this is the thing about anthology films, Allison, is it's, it's lots of different movies and it's, they're sort of the sum of their parts. Did you think overall that, this, the, you know, would you give it a passing grade? Would you say you enjoyed or were horrified or they were successful in most situations in 14 out of 26 letters? I enjoyed, I would say, like overall, yes, I would give it a passing grade, but I will have to say that with the caveat that I watched this in three chunks. Okay. This movie is about two hours and 10 minutes long, I believe. And I think seeing it in the theater in one whole would have been pretty numbing to me. 26 different shorts is a lot yes. to have together in one film. Yes. And I think the impact would have kind of started going uh, like and also just having so many that try immediately for this very visceral response would get very 
difficult very quickly, very just tiring. Right. There's different ways to make anthologies about different things. You know, in this case, I agree with you. You sort of see sort of the strengths and the weaknesses of an anthology film. The strength is, look, there's a lot of really talented people here, and you do get to find some people who you go, oh, I don't really know this guy. I've never heard of him before, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look for him in the future. You get to sample all these different filmmakers from all over the world. You really get a sense of kind of the up-and-coming world of international genre cinema, and I think that's really fantastic. On the other side, I did think it was a little repetitive. You know, there are there's, – there's only so many ways to kill a person, Allison, and I have to say, like, at a certain point it did kind of just feel like – not only the that the subject matter was the same, but it was almost like the structure. You know, it's like you set it up, and then you have some sort of transgression, and then you always have a twist. You know, it, it it did get to feel a little bit rote to me. And when what you're trafficking in is shock value and the the ability to surprise someone, that's a problem because at a certain point you become less and less shocked because you're sort of anticipating it. I don't know. I mean, I would say overall, I don't know if I would even give it the 14 out of 26 kind of passing grade. I felt like about 10 of them were really good. And about 10 of them were kind of terrible, and then the rest in the middle. So I almost feel like, you know, you can watch it on streaming. I would almost, like, cherry pick. But I don't know if I can say that the whole two-hour and ten-minute experience was a was a satisfying one. I do think that there is something, having said that I broke it up into three, which is I would I would actually recommend that, like, if you are going to watch the whole thing, and, and I think it is worth seeing the whole thing from my perspective, you not do it all at once. It does kind of lose its effect as it goes. But I do think there's something to watching it as a whole that gives you a really interesting overall perspective on what filmmakers now reach for in terms of that, like that button pushing moment, Mm -hmm. right? If you have like very little setup, you have very little mythology to establish, you have like this very small window. What do these different filmmakers from around the world reach for? Like, what are the things, you know? And I think I, I did like seeing that just the trends that were there and the kind of, you know, as as cinema has really kind of gotten more extreme, mm-hmm. especially as represented in the Fantastic Fest world, which has always showcased some really interestingly out there movies, uh, I think getting this survey of that, of like, and the filmmakers from really around the world, like this is a very international selection, the, uh, that, that spectrum, I really like being able to see in these like small, small chunks. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I'll say on the flip side, a lot of the movie is built around surprise. They actually don't tell you what the method of execution is until it's over. So you know that it's the letter A or the letter B or the letter C, but you don't actually know what A is for until they show you at the end. So there is sort of like this element of surprise, like what is this one going to be and what is this one going to do and how is this person going to die? Because it's not always immediately obvious what the sort of hook is. So, I mean, it's fun to watch one time, but I also wonder like how much rewatch value the movie might have because once you kind of know which what what each one is and once you've already seen the shock or whatever the surprise is, I just I don't know. It felt very disposable in that way to me. Yeah, I can see that. But I think it reminded me a little bit of an event that they have at Fantastic Fest where they just have like a screening of kills 100 from, best 100 kills best i think kills. it's called yeah cut together from different movies and some of them are fans submitted and some of them are from the programmers and stripped of context then you're just watching you know this part like this character die and like again and again and again and it is a kind of it's as an exercise there's something to it of just being like how do these things look like how do you process them and right. i feel like there's a bit of that here where you're like you don't have a lot of run-up for context. You're basically showcasing 
that shock, right? That twist, that moment of like twisting the knife. Right. And I think there was something interesting to that to me about having that happen in quick succession. There is, although I think the way you're describing it, it does kind of make it sound like more like an experiment than a movie. Yeah, well, I think I think it does feel like that. I mean, yeah. that's kind of why, like when you talk about pulling these apart, I don't know that many of them, if any of them, would be that valuable to me standalone. Right, right. But uh, to me, I, I, I would say some of them didn't feel all that valuable to me as In a group context. either. Yeah. You know, you've mentioned Fantastic Fest several times already, and it's a festival we've both been to and really love. And, and part of what I love about seeing these strange movies from all over the world is that Yes, they can be very transgressive. They can very be very shocking. But usually in the best ones, that's sort of the the way that something is said. You know, these movies are about something else. They're not just shocking us. The shock is being used to convey something that the director wants to say. And in, in this case, it's sort of just transgression, just shock, and very little else except – you know, like in a, the case of like the one that I mentioned, like the letter X, like there was a, there's something that's horrifying, scary, it's disgusting, but it's making a statement about, you know, body issues and the way we treat each other. Like in four minutes, he actually manages to express a point of view on the world and also be really disgusting in kind of a fun way. Yeah, see, that was not one of my favorite shorts because I felt like it really? laid on its point really too, like, heavily. Yeah. Oh, well, but it's yeah. four minutes. I mean, it's like, not Well, a... that's it. Like, I kind of, I feel like the ones that were more fragments worked more better for me. Huh. That I preferred those. Yeah. But, I mean, I think, you know, I think for you, you were looking at these as pieces unto themselves, which I totally understand. And I think for me, this is a much more interesting film as yeah like as this selection of fragments okay yeah well we've talked a little bit about a couple of favorites was ella's for libido was that your very favorite or just the most kind of disturbing I, to you i think it was probably it might have been my favorite i also liked always for orgasm which is from the couple that did uh, a mare which is this kind of stylized giallo homage film that like that film is strips down to these like incredibly like sensory close-ups basically of like in this short, things like fingers and like bubbles coming from someone's mouth and all of yeah. that, I think was really interesting and provocative. Yes. Uh, and I really liked Pia's for pressure. Yeah, that was a, that was a gut-wrenching one, that too. Was, yes. I like that one as well. I thought that was really well done. And also, you know, it's about, you know, something. It's about a place. It's about right. a person. Uh, I don't know how much we want to describe about that story, but not just shock value for shock value sake. Yes, though it does come with like a when it does make it seem there I is shock. There is something shocking also, in it because of also it's set in a more realistic world than most of them. That's a good point. That when that shock comes around, it's maybe a has little a little more, bit of weight to yeah, it as opposed to some of this other yeah. the other ones. What were some of your other favorites? Well, the one I really wanted to single out that I thought was really funny and, and fun was Q is for Quack, which is by Adam Wingard and Simon Barrett. They're the guys, the director and writer of You're Next, among other movies. And that one I just thought was really fun. It didn't take itself too seriously, which I, I would say some of the shorts well, I felt. It was the meta one. It, it was is the, the most, most meta, meta one. one. Yeah. yeah. And I guess that's sort of maybe easy, I suppose, as you get to. But I mean, I like that there weren't that many of those, actually. I think it benefited from the fact that there are only two, really, that talk about right. the structure. And as you mentioned, there are some themes that also pop up in some of the other ones. So, yeah, the repetition of themes is, can be a problem. Well, there's 26 shorts. It's... And they're all made independently. Right. right. It can be hard to ta carve out your own niche. And the the Q1, uh, it had, it's had its own little thing, I yeah, guess. Yeah, it so was clever. I thought in, that was well done. They're playing themselves in it, Adam Wingard and Simon Barrett. They appear in it as themselves, trying to figure out how to do their short. Actually, he's kind of cute. Yeah, he is. Hey, Mr. Quackers, come here. 
Yes. Yes. Ah, fuck. Let's kill this fucking duck. How do we do this? Well, we got to make sure we pretty much kill it right away. We don't want to suffer too much. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. This isn't a snuff film. This is art. Ducks die all the time for food. Okay, yeah. Yeah, this is what you eat, America. You American pigs. I thought that one, it fulfilled all the obligations of what these shorts needed to do while also commenting on them and also being really funny. So that was one that I definitely wanted to mention. I would just say, you know, it's such a great idea, and I think that's what happened. Is like, what if we did, you know, ABCs of death? Like, it, you get it, you get it in the title, you know, and the idea seems so perfect. But I think in execution, twenty-six different short films. You know, I don't think some of the directors were quite up to the standard of the others. You know, you can sort of pick out the guys who are really talented or who really took it seriously. Everything you've said about it is interesting, and about how you found it to be sort of an experiment and an exercise. I don't know. Do you really think it was intended as that? I don't know if that's really what the intention was. I think was. that the intention was they gave everyone $5,000 and were like, we're going to put this together into a movie. Right. And they, But I mean, they wanted to like scare or make you laugh or, you know, I, I feel like it was much more visceral. I think it visceral. was to showcase the work of people they like. I think that that's like as close as I could get to what I would imagine the, motiva- the motivation was. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, the ABCs of Death is currently available for streaming on Netflix. You can also rent the movie at Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube. And now, before we move on to our last segment, we've got to go through our listeners' choice suggestions for our next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. We went with all Netflix picks this time. So if you have a Netflix account, you're in luck. We have three picks, including one TV series. First up is The Bay, which is the film from Barry Levinson that was in theaters last fall. Barry Levinson, of course, known for Good Morning Vietnam, Rain Man, a long career in in kind of studio filmmaking. This is an eco-terror movie, which is always an interesting genre. It's a found footage style film about what happens to a small Maryland town when there's this toxic event involving the water. And the things that happen are not nice, of course. So that is the first choice. It is The Bay. Second up is Orange is the New Black. This is the new Netflix original series that went live uh, earlier this month. It is from Genji Cohen, who is the creator of Weeds. And it's about a 30-something Brooklynite played by Taylor Schilling, who we all remember from Atlas Shrugged Part 1, who is sent to jail for 15 months for a crime she participated in a decade ago when uh, she was a waitress and involved with another woman. It's uh, a pretty body, funny, and really surprisingly good series. It's gotten very good reviews. So uh, that's one that I would certainly be interested in talking about. That's Orange is the New Black. And finally, we have Starlet. This is a recent indie from Sean Baker, who is also the director of Prince of Broadway and Takeout, as well as a co-creator of Greg the Bunny. It's set in the San Fernando Valley and follows Dree Hemingway, who plays a 21-year-old actress and who befriends an elderly widow played by Basedka Johnson. And this was a highly acclaimed indie, low-budget indie, that uh, got a lot of great press and picked up some awards last year. So it'd certainly be great to catch up on that. That's Starlet. All right, so what should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? You can send your pick to svu at filmspottingsvu.com. Or you can enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. 
Your vote must be received by Monday, July 22nd at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner at our Twitter account, twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu, and you'll have all that week to watch the film or TV show. And then join us for our conversation, which will be on our next episode on Tuesday, July 30th. And we should mention, if you're not yet a subscriber to Film Spotting streaming video unit, you should do that. You can subscribe on iTunes or filmspottingsvu.com. Coming up next, we're counting down our top five anthology films available online. Stay with us. shot on whether you'd be going left or right. You see, we're both going left. You could have just as easily been going left, too, and if that was the case, it would have been a while before you started getting scared. But since you're going the other way, I'm afraid you're going to have to start getting scared immediately. Welcome back to Film Spotting with Allison Wilmore. I'm Matt Singer, filling in for Adam and Josh this week. You just heard a scene... From Death Proof, which I actually think, Allison, is maybe the most underrated Quentin Tarantino movie. One of his best. And it's also part of an anthology film called Grindhouse, which came out a few years ago. It featured, in an unusual touch for an anthology film, it was full films. It was a double feature of two full-length movies, Death Proof by Tarantino and Planet Terror by Robert Rodriguez, plus a bunch of shorts. And it was made to look like an old an old-style double feature at a grindhouse, but when you look at the definition of an anthology film, which is multiple films in one larger film, it's definitely an anthology film. But it's not going to make my list. It's not going to make your list, and there's one simple reason for that. It's not available online for streaming and rental, and that's going to be the caveat this week in the top five. It's your ordinary top five, like Adam and Josh do on the show every week, but to give it that film-spotting streaming video unit touch we sort of limited ourselves to what's available online so these are all going to be movies that you can either watch instantly on netflix or hulu or amazon prime one of those websites or it's something you can rent on youtube or itunes or google play all these different websites so that was the caveat here has to be available online so grindhouse a movie that might have actually been my number one because i I kind of love that movie, and I love the fact that you're getting two full movies for the price of one. That might have been my number one. It certainly would have been on my list. It's not going to be there. 
something like Fantasia, which is, you know, a masterpiece, a classic, not available online, so that's going to be out. Any other, Allison, any other rules or quirks you want to mention before we get started, how you formulated your list? No, I, I mean, I did include some films that were all from one director, some films that were made by several directors. Uh, I think both kind of fit. And one film that's probably in between the realm of anthology film and sketch film. But they're pretty close, I think. So. Well, well, maybe we should do this then. Very quickly define what is the difference between an anthology film and a sketch film. Is there one? I don't know that there really is. I mean, I mean, sketches... if an anthology film is a film comprised of short films, then a sketch film to me is an anthology film. Yeah, I would agree. I would say maybe the where, where it gets blurry is when you might have a recurring sketch throughout a movie or something like that. that right. Blurs it together. But for the most part, I think if it's like clean sketches, it basically is an anthology film. I think it definitely applies. I also think we need to delineate between the anthology film and what's called like the hyperlink film, right. where you have multiple stories in one movie. To me... A hyperlink film is multiple stories that are cross-cut. Uh, an anthology film can have some overlap a little bit with the characters or the locations. You know, there can be some cutesy stuff going on. But an anthology film, story A starts and ends. Story B starts and ends. Story C starts and ends. And in the hyperlink film, story A starts, story B starts, story C starts. Story A continues, story C continues, story A continues, story B continues. And then they end and they're all brought together in some way. So that, to me, is a hyperlink film, and that is out. That doesn't count. Agreed. Okay. All right. Well, I think with that said, let's get to our picks. Allison, what's your number five? All right. My number five is a film that I just stumbled across recently and I was pretty happy with called Doomsday Book. This is a 2012 Korean film. It is currently streaming on Netflix, and it's from two directors. Uh, they each directed one segment, and then they co-directed the last segment. So one of the directors is uh, Yim Pil-sung, who I have not seen work from before, but he did a film called Hansel and Gretel. And then the other director is Kim Ji-woon, who did The Good, The Bad, and The Weird, I Saw the Devil. It's you know, one of the like, major kind of young... The Arnold Schwarzenegger yeah. film, The Last Stand. Yes, that as well. Uh, it was like, you know, the major uh, rising Korean film directors. And these are all apocalypse stories. So the first one is kind of a zombie romantic comedy, I guess you could call it, about uh, an engineering student who his parents leave for a holiday and he becomes involved with the world turning into a zombie hell. And it's it's actually really well done. And I don't know if I've ever seen an Asian zombie movie before, a take on it. And it's it's pretty funny, but it also takes on a lot of the classic themes. And uh the the last film is a similarly kind of funny uh, and takes off a lot of the, the kind of tropes that you'd expect, which is it's about a meteor hurtling towards the earth and possibly set to destroy it. But the center film is a different one. That's the one that's directed by Kim Ji-woo and has a kind of different feel. And it's about a robot who has been working at a, um, a monastery, a Buddhist monastery, and then attains enlightenment. What? What? And then becomes the source of discussion for whether such a thing is possible and then about humanity. But overall, it's a really solid three films and on a topic that I'm not really sure I've ever seen explored in an anthology film before, which is 
the popular one of the apocalypse. So uh, that's a doomsday book. It is currently streaming on Netflix, and I, I recommend checking it out. All right. I saw that movie at Fantastic Fest, actually, which we've mentioned several times on this show. Wasn't a huge fan. The middle segment that you mentioned is definitely the, the standout the one. one. I thought the ones surrounding it were a little little on the weak side. Yeah, I like the first one a lot. All right. All right. Well, it's not going to make my list, but, you know, it's a good pick. My number five film, I had to have at least one horror anthology on here because horror is really sort of the most popular. I think, and it kind of works the best. Maybe. Why do you think that is? I think because it's easier to have this kind of uh, coherent idea in a shorter span of time when it's a horror story. It has a kind of ends on a, like a punctuation, right? It ends on a scare. Mm. And I think that it makes it work a little easier than having three more general shorts or, you know, three seems to be the magic number. Okay. So I had to have something horror based on here. My number five film is Tales of Terror, which is available for rent on Amazon and iTunes. It's from 1962 and directed by Roger Corman with a screenplay based on the Edgar Allan Poe short stories uh, by Richard Matheson. One of his first screenplays He's the great writer. He passed away uh, last month. The great writer of I Am Legend and so many other great novels and short stories and, of course, famously contributed to The Twilight Zone. This film is three Edgar Allan Poe shorts. They all star Vincent Price. They're all kind of scary, but, I, I, I mean, the appeal to me is sort of the, I don't know, just the sort of ambiance. I just I just enjoy something about the, the Corman Poe movies. They're kind of scary, but they also kind of have, I don't know, they're just sort of like an... an, an enduring cheesiness about them that i admire and just this one has price in all three stories which is fantastic you also have peter laurie and, and basil rathbone so you've got a, a surprisingly solid cast the three shorts are morella the black cat and the facts in the case of monsieur valdemar i mean it's been a little while since i've seen this one but i've always i've always enjoyed all the poe movies and this one is i think a, a, just another solid one and yeah maybe the the, the fact that they're shorter it's it's not required to aspire to to do too much when it's a, when it's a short or a series of shorts and you can just kind of coast on the deliciousness of Vincent Price's acting and and some of the the floridness of the 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 production design and the Roger Corman uh, horror touch so that's tales of terror and it's available now on Amazon and iTunes Okay, my number four pick is not a horror one. I do have another horror film coming up eventually. But this is a film from Jim Jarmusch, who has done a few anthology films. Uh, my pick is Night on Earth, which is currently streaming on Hulu. This is in his 1991 film, and it's about five, it's basically, it consists of five vignettes, and they all are, they take place in cabs around the world, uh, usually late night. Uh, Los Angeles, New York, Paris, Rome, and Helsinki. And Jarmusch is a filmmaker who I mean, kind of demands you get on his his like wavelength with these. And there's a certain generosity to these kind of like sometimes the shagginess of these com conversations, you know, that like he he's willing to let these moments between characters play out in a way that's really interesting. And I, I think that he does better than maybe any other filmmaker. And what's nice about this film, which contains uh, stories with Winona Ryder, Beatrice Dahl, Roberto Benigni, you know, as it skips around the world, is that there's no sense of like a deliberate theme being put on them. Each of the each of the stories exists pretty neatly unto itself, but also doesn't you can't sum up like what was the point? Like, what was that particular interaction about? They just work really well. And there's something 
great about how these ones in particular capture that sense of late night encounter in passing with a stranger, the conversation you might have and the kind of interesting places it can take you. That is Night on Earth. It is currently streaming on Hulu. Yeah, Jim Jarmusch is kind of one of the one of the kings of the anthology film, actually. He's made quite a few of them. Yeah, Coffee and Cigarettes, Mystery Train. Oh, it's funny you mentioned Mystery Train because it's my number four pick. Ah. It's also available on Hulu Plus. It's also directed by Jim Jarmusch. And it's from 1989. This was made before Night on Earth. So the this one sort of... Similar in terms of the structure, but different. It, it's also about a setting. The anthology is connected by setting, but instead of a, a cab in different places around the world, these are all set in the city of Memphis, Tennessee. And each of the three stories is about a different outsider or outsiders, people from other countries who are in Memphis and experiencing the city. The first one is about a Japanese couple, a tourists. The second one is about a widow from Italy. And the third one is about a guy from England uh, who loses his job. And each of the, the, the stories are basically unconnected, but they share not only Memphis, but this hotel where scenes are set in each one, where one of the employees is played by the blues singer Screamin' Jay Hawkins. And they also share the song Blue Moon, which appears in all of them, and also a gunshot, which we hear repeatedly throughout the, the, the film, which is almost like a mystery, like where what is the gunshot? What does it mean? I really like this movie a lot, and what I like about it isn't even so much the individual stories as the the portrayal that they collectively create of Memphis. I was able to go to Memphis on my vacation a few years ago in 2011, I guess, and the the version of the city that I experienced is the version that is in this movie. It is, it's kind of uncanny, actually. It's this beautiful city that has this really rich cultural history of the blues and it has all these amazing places to visit it's a you know graceland sun studios all these sorts of things but there's also a lot of abandoned buildings there's a lot of poverty <laughs> this is where the blues comes from you know it's like beautiful but also really sad it it just really feels like it's not even the way it looks it's the way it feels about the city it just really captures something about the character of this place which we don't see in movies a lot you know there are famous anthology films about uh, cities around the world and i feel like those cities a lot of times are places we see a lot of movies set in. You don't see a lot of movies set in Memphis, and I think Mystery Train really gets at what the city is all about. So that's Mystery Train. It is available for streaming on Hulu+. Plus. Okay, my third pick is a film from Akira Kurosawa. It's not one of his major works, but he's made some pretty good movies, so we'll allow him <laughs> some <laughs> kind of more mixed bags. And this one is called Dreams. It is a 1990 film. It is available to rent on Vudu. And this is an anthology film based on his actual dreams, dreams he's had throughout his life. They're very imagery heavy. They're much more so than maybe coherent stories. Uh, an example of one, there's one in which uh, Vincent van Gogh, played by Martin Scorsese, takes an art student through different paintings of his, which uh, with visual effects by uh, Industrial Light and Magic as like the painting. They're walking through the paintings. So uh, if you're a Kurosawa completist, this is probably one you've already seen. But it is also just a really visually amazing film. And uh, and the one with Martin Scorsese is interesting, certainly. It's uh, Dreams, and that is available for rent on Vudu. All right. That's one I haven't ever gotten to see. I'll have to catch up with it at some point. My number three is one of those movies where the theme is a city and one of those cities that a lot of movies are set in, New York. 
And the film is New York Stories from 1989, the same year as a Mystery Train, actually. It was a big year for anthology films, 1989. This one has three short films by three directors you've probably heard of. There's Life Lessons by Martin Scorsese. There's Life Without Zoe by Francis Ford Coppola. And there's Oedipus Rex by Woody Allen. And that's the one, to me, that's the, the one that I've always loved. You know, I haven't seen this movie in a while, and I... I should go back and revisit the whole thing, but the one, I've seen the Woody Allen one a whole bunch of times. It is a, it's one of my favorite kind of Woody Allen things, and it's it's about he, he is in it. He plays Woody Allen, I suppose. He plays Sheldon, who has a you know he's got issues with his mother. They go to a magic show. The mother is put in like the disappearing box trick, and then the mother completely disappears, which at first seems like. A godsend, but then there is a complication, um, and that uh, well, well, I don't want to spoil it, but I've always enjoyed that one, and th- that came sort of in a period, you know, because this is 1989. This was a period where Woody Allen was making largely dramas and and slightly more serious films, so it was sort of like a return to an older style of Woody Allen film for him, which uh, which which is nice, and and he seems to sort of really be enjoying himself in a which for Woody Allen means he's incredibly neurotic and. And it's it's very uncomfortable, but it's still really funny. Sheldon, where have you been? I've been looking all over for you. I was just discussing your problem with these nice people. Where are you? Do I know? Look, Sheldon, I've had plenty of time to think about it. Don't get married. Not here. Why should you rush in? This is not the place to discuss it. Where should I go? I'm here. You think a man his age should get married? They only met six months ago. It depends. If she's a nice girl, why not? She's nice, but why do they have to rush in? He's still paying alimony. Mother, stop. Let them lead their own lives. I have the same problem with my daughter. They grow up and they think they have all the answers. Uh, I would. I guess I would recommend the whole thing overall. I, I you know, I do need to go back and, and rewatch the Scorsese and Coppola ones. I, I never had the strongest of reactions to either one of those, but... I might feel differently now. It's been a while since I've seen it. I, I actually want to revisit the whole thing, and I can because it's available for uh, streaming on Hulu right now. That's New York Stories. My next film are, is not necessarily one that you'd want to break up. It definitely exists as a whole, uh, even though there's one moment in it that's very famous, and it is Monty Python's The Meaning of Life, which is currently streaming on Netflix. It is... Technically a sketch film as well as an anthology film, though I would say this one breaks up into pieces much more cleanly than you would normally expect of a sketch film in general, because it is about life, the stages of life uh, put through the very perverse sense of humor of Monty Python, particularly given that this is probably their darkest film overall. It's got a real edge to its humor. This was made in 1983. They had previously done a sketch film uh, that basically had been their show cut together called And Now for Something Completely Different in 1971. But this is made for the movies and looks very cinematic. It even starts off with basically a standalone short film called The Crimson Permanent Assurance, directed by Terry Gilliam, in which a bunch of elderly office clerks stage a revolt against their office, turn the office building into a pirate ship, and sail to do a corporate takeover of another sky, like high rise in another city. That's just, you know, very Terry Gilliam esque. But overall, the sense of humor in this film is much, just much blacker in the signature sketch, really, the signature sequence, uh, which is Mr. Creosote, in which this grotesquely obese man 
and, and a very rude man comes into a restaurant, orders everything on the menu. Ah, good afternoon, sir. And how are we today? Better. Better? Better get a bucket. I'm going to throw up. Uh, Gaston, a bucket for monsieur. Merci, Gaston. I'm finished. Oh, pardon, Gaston. A thousand pardons, monsieur. After vomiting in a bucket several times and uh, and explodes. And it's a famous, famous sequence and utterly disgusting. But one of the things that makes it work so well is the continued politeness with which the, the maitre d' and the waiter, you know, treat him, even as he barks at them, vomits a lot, and horrifies everyone else in the restaurant and ultimately, you know, goes up in a spray of intestines. That is Monty Python's The Meaning of Life. It is streaming on Netflix. Finally, monsieur, a wafer-thin mint. Bah. Oh, sir, it's only a tiny little thin one. Now, fuck off, I'm full. Oh, sir. Okay, not the best Monty Python movie by a long shot. No, I don't think anyone would argue that. Right, but, but still worth seeing. Definitely worth seeing. That's a good pick. Okay, my number two film is also a, I suppose, a sketch film as well. But uh, it's all, I think it's also definitely an anthology film. It's lots of short stories. It's based on a book, the name of the book, Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Sex But Were Afraid to Ask. And this is another film with Woody Allen, who apparently is another uh, master of the anthology film, I suppose. Um, this is sort of the black sheep of the early Woody Allen films, puns very much intended in this case. It came between Bananas and Sleeper, which have much better reputations. Uh, but I've always liked this movie, even though people always kind of look down upon it as the, the crummy early Woody Allen comedy. And the subject matter is sex and all these different uh, aspects of it. Basically, it has nothing to do with the book other than the fact that Woody Allen took some of the questions that are answered in the book and turned a few of them into sketches that he thought would be funny, including What is Sodomy, which features Gene Wilder falling in love with a sheep. And there's another great one that's called, Are the Findings of Doctors and Clinics Who Do Sexual Research and Experiments Accurate? That's like an old-fashioned kind of sci-fi or horror movie with Woody Allen meeting this crazy mad scientist played by John Carradine who's doing all these disgusting sexual experiments. And finally, and maybe most famously, What Happens During Ejaculation, which is a a representation of the inner workings of the male reproductive system featuring great actors like Tony Randall and Burt Reynolds playing sort of like the brain, and Woody Allen plays a sperm. Nothing's nothing's less funny than someone explaining something that's funny. So I would just say that it's a perfect match of, like, subject matter and filmmaker. I really would recommend you check it out. If you've seen the other early Woody Allen movies and you haven't seen this one because you've heard, uh, it's so-so, it's not that good. No, it is good. It is everything you always wanted to know about sex but were afraid to ask. And it's available now for rent on Amazon and iTunes. Okay, my last pick is, while it's an anthology film, I think it's also considered just a classic in its own right overall. And it is Quaidon, which is available to stream on Hulu Plus. This is a 1964 film directed by Masaki Kobayashi. And it's about four different stories that are based on, you know, Japanese uh, folk tales, basically. Though interestingly, they're based on stories from a collection that was written by a Westerner. Uh, who had gone to Japan and kind of written about them. So there's even this sense of, like, reflecting through another point of view. The stories are all told in this really gorgeous expressionist style. Like, they're painted backdrops. They're, like, very obviously taking place on stages. There's no attempt to have it 
look like it's taking place in the real world. Kind of, there's one scene in the second story in which there's an eye, a giant eye painted on the sky in the background as these two characters are getting lost in the snow and are going to have an encounter with a demon. The style of it is really amazing and, and fits so well with these eerie tales. And all of them work pretty well. I would say the best ones for me are the first one and the third one. The first one is this slight, has a bit more of this morality tale to it in that it's about a samurai who leaves his faithful, devoted wife to go marry uh, a richer one and have this nicer position and then regrets it and comes back. And then what he discovers there has the supernatural touch and is really well done. And then the third one is probably the most famous. It's called Hoichi the Earless. He's like a singer, basically, who always, he knows the story of this famous sea battle between these two clans and sings it so well, performs it so well that the ghosts of the clans have started summoning him at night from the monastery to perform their story, basically. And, uh, and someone tries to save him from this fate of having to go and sing the song cycle to them over again every night. And it doesn't work out perfectly. <laughs> but when does it ever when you're involving angry clans of ghosts? It's, uh, it's, a, pretty, it's a pretty great film. Uh, and I, I think it just manages overall this really nice, it's, it's horror technically, but it's also just, I think, uh, just like a gorgeous art film. And uh, it's conveniently available now on Hulu Plus. So now you can take a look. It is quite on. Okay, my number one film. It's another comedy. It's another sketch film. One of my favorites of all time. The Kentucky Fried Movie from 1977, directed by John Landis. And written by David Zucker, Jim Abrams, and Jerry Zucker. Those are the guys who go on to do Airplane and The Naked Gun. This was their first film, just as writers. They didn't direct it. John Landis directed it. This is the film he made right before Animal House, sort of. Uh, really launched his career. And what I like about this movie, besides the fact that it is just hysterically funny, is it does have kind of that thing we talked about with the ABCs of death. You know, the anthology film as like the launching pad for young talent. John Landis had made one film before this, but, you know, certainly not a huge success. The Zucker brothers and Jim Abrams, at this point, they were basically unknown, you know. But this uh, sketch idea gave them a chance to sort of have this this moment, this introduction. The Zuckers and Abrams had a theater where they in their hometown called the Kentucky Fried Theater, where they would do sketches. You know, it was like an improv comedy show where they would do sketch comedy. And so they thought to kind of go into movies, which is what they wanted to do, they would sort of adapt the stage show. So that's why it's a, it's a, it's a sketch movie, is it's based on a lot of the sketches they used to do in their show, and they just turned it into a movie. And I think it still works. It's still hilariously funny. There are some sketches in here that are... Some of my all-time favorite comedy sketches, including Catholic High School Girls in Trouble, which is a parody of exploitation films. There's another fake trailer called Cleopatra Schwartz. She was six feet of black dynamite. He was a short Hasidic Jew. She fought a savage battle to stay alive in the ghetto. He studied the Talmud at night. She burned the ghetto to the ground. He kindled the Sabbath candles. Theirs was a love of passion, a torrent sensual lust, fueled by those who said no. Samuel L. Bronkowitz presents Cleopatra Schwartz. <laughs> There's a the, sort of the long 
half-hour trunk in the middle that's a, that's part of a like, – almost like a mini feature is A Fistful of Yen. That's basically a parody of Enter the Dragon. There's a lot of different parodies of news and commercials. It's just everything about it is still funny, I think. Uh, it just came out on Blu-ray as well. So if you, you're not into the streaming thing, there's a brand-new Blu-ray that just came out. That's great. You can check that out. You can, you can really appreciate in high definition all the fantastic photography because that's what this film is about is really beautiful cinematography. But if you do want to watch it online, it is available for rent now on Google Play and YouTube. <laughs> I'm sorry if my pick, my, my number one pick, is just an incredibly juvenile, puerile comedy. But that's what I like. I have to be honest, Allison. I have to be me. This is, I mean, this is certainly, without question, the anthology movie I have watched more than any other movie. And I have watched it so many times. I believe you. Samuel L. Bronkowitz presents <laughs> my top five anthology films available online. And I appreciate that we have no crossover at all. No, there you go. You have ten good anthology films to choose from. Which And it is kind of a mixed bag of a genre. There are a lot of crummy ones that we haven't mentioned. Yeah, and there really are a lot where there's one part of a film that I've liked, and then the other parts of it are just not good enough to really justify the whole thing. Right. Yeah. So that was our top five anthology movies available online. If you have any feedback, you can send it to the show at feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave the show a voicemail at 312-264-0744. Or you can find us on Twitter at FilmSpottingSVU, or you can find Adam and Josh at FilmSpotting. Opening this week in wide release, Red 2. It's a sequel to the 2010 film starring Bruce Willis, Mary Louise Parker, Morgan Freeman, and John Malkovich. Red is actually an acronym, Allison. Do you know what it stands for? I have no idea. Retired, extremely dangerous, because they are retired CIA operatives and they're... They're on an adventure. So there you go. That's what it stands for. Also, speaking of acronyms, opening wide is RIPD. That stars Jeff Bridges and Ryan Reynolds. They are members of the Rest in Peace Department. They're ghost cops, which I think should have been the title, (laughs) Ghost Cops. Allison, uh, as far as I know, the only press screening of this movie is, in New York City anyway, is Thursday night, the night before it opens, which is always a really good sign. It's always a good sign, I'm sure this is an exceptional piece of... Cinematic craftsmanship. Here's a little bit of trivia for you. R.I.P.D. is directed by a gentleman by the name of Robert Schwentke, who also made the first Red. So he's opening against himself. He's, he's competing. competing with the sequel to his own movie. This is It's going to be an interesting week for that guy, I'm sure. Finally, also opening and wide release, the one that I'm actually looking forward to seeing, The Conjuring. This is the new horror film from James Wan, the director of Saw, and most recently Insidious, which is a fantastic horror film. This is based on a true story, and I'm sure it's extremely faithful to the real-life events, about a pair of paranormal investigators who are trying to help a family whose house is haunted by some kind of evil entity. So we've got ghost cops, and we've got paranormal investigators. It's a great week for the spectral law enforcement industry, Allison. So there you go. Next week, Adam and Josh will be back, and according to my sources, they will be reviewing Guillermo del Toro's Pacific Rim. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hallgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. And thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths. And special thanks to Tori Malatia at WBEZ Chicago Public Media. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect our community, our nation, and our world. More information available at chicagopublicmedia.org.
The featured music this week was Cliff Martinez's score for Only God Forgives, which is available now. You can learn more about Cliff's work as a composer at cliff-martinez.com. For Film Spotting and Film Spotting SVU, I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 